At risk of the claim that I only make office references, let me make a reference from The Office. Uh, the, if you remember, if you've ever seen The Office, if you saw the episode on money, you remember that Michael Scott, who's the boss, starts to have this, uh, he basically has to confront his growing debt. And so he does things like he goes to Oscar, one of the accountants, and he asks for an advance on his salary. He goes to Kevin, the other, one of the other accountants, and asks if there's like a sure thing in terms of gambling. And uh, Kevin says, like, he just quietly and just says, like, the mob is the only way to know if there's a short thing for gambling. But at one point, everyone's in the break room, and they're talking about it. They're talking about Michael. He's just been bad at money his whole life or whatever it might be. And Michael walks in, and Oscar, one of the accountants, says, Michael, are you having money problems? Michael Scott says, monkey problems? No, I'm not having monkey problems. Why would I have monkey problems? Oscar says, I know you heard me correctly. And Michael sighs and goes, I hate monkeys. <laughs> James here is saying in this passage, you have a money problem. And we oftentimes, when we hear these passages go, go something like, Michael, monkey problems? And James is like, I know you heard me. You have a money problem. And more importantly here, what James says is you have a wealth problem. Young people, teenagers, did you know that no one in the Bible talks more about money and the dangers of it than Jesus? Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. He says, you'll hate one and love the other. You can't serve both. And so followers of Jesus should use their wealth in light of God's sovereignty and his kingdom. And that's what we'll see today. That wealth, number one, must be seen in light of God's sovereignty. And secondly, it must be seen in light of God's kingdom. But before we get there, I just want to talk about the dangers of money. The dangers of wealth in particular. Because wealth isn't always just money. There's other things that go into it. Possessions. Our houses, our cars, our retirement plans. The Bible warns us of the danger of wealth. So look at James 4.13, and we're going to read this section and another section starting in chapter 5. But 4.13 starts this way. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Then jump over to chapter 5. Come now, right? See the connection point? Come now. You rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. So there's these two sections. Both are connected with come now. So if you have your Bibles, underline those two, come now. James, in the first section, from verses 13, chapter 4 to verses, verse 17, is specifically addressing Christian business persons, although the principles are there for all Christians. And, chapter, and verse 17 makes that clear, as we'll see. It shows that this is a principle for all Christians. But then in the second section, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, James pronounces condemnation on the non-Christian rich. But before we get there, let's, before we jump in, let's actually look at what the Bible says about wealth. First, the Bible says that wealth can be a good gift. Look at Ecclesiastes 5, verse 19. Furthermore, everyone to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also allowed him to enjoy them, take his reward, and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God. Wealth can be a gift from God. 
Acts chapter 16, there's uh, this woman named Lydia. She sells purple goods, which at the time are very rare. Only, like It's very luxurious to be able to have those and sell those. And she hosted the Philippian church in her home. Now, as, if you do some research on the homes in, in first century Roman Empire, most Roman citizens, they live in what one author says are dangerous, cramped, and smelly houses. But wealthier Christians lived in what they called a domus, all right? So if you want to go press your friends later, wealthier Christians live in a domus. No one seems impressed by that, so we're going to keep going. This was a house built, as the author writes, this was a house built around an unroofed courtyard or atrium, which acted as the reception and living area. So they have the, a wealthier Christian lives in a dome, or a wealthier Roman lives in a domus. Lydia would be one of those because she's able to host people into her home in an atrium. So in the end of chapter 16, Paul and Silas get out of jail. They go to visit the Philippian church in Lydia's home. So her home plus her profession probably means she was wealthy, and she used that gift for the spreading of the gospel in Philippi. So wealth can be a good gift from God, but it also can be a danger. I'm going to give you five ways the Bible talks about wealth being a danger. And again, this is not Evan talking about wealth. The Bible talks about danger of wealth a lot. But it says these, some of these, these are just five of the many things it says. Number one, wealth can be a snare for our hearts and destroy our faith. These should all be on the screen. That's 1 Timothy, 1, 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10. Secondly, wealth can be our downfall, Proverbs eleven twenty eight 28 says. And then listen to things that Jesus says, right? Meek and mild Jesus, right? He's like, in our culture, he's like everybody's best friend. He's just this cool teacher guy, right? Talking about peace all the time. He wouldn't ever talk about our money. Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says, wealth can actually keep you from entering God's kingdom. Wealth can choke out God's word from taking root in your heart. And wealth can take God's place as master over your life. Wealth isn't always good. It isn't always bad but it's never neutral. That's what the Bible wants us to see. It's sometimes good, sometimes bad, but it's never neutral. The Bible spends significant time warning us of the dangers of wealth. And since we have a sin nature, even if you're a Christian, your sin nature is still within you and has this conflict with the Holy Spirit. We shouldn't assume, because our sin nature is there, we shouldn't assume that we're going to be able to handle our wealth unless God changes our perspective on how we use it. So the first way God changes our perspective on how we use it is that wealth must be used in light of his sovereignty. Pick up in chapter 4 of James, verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow... We will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Don't trust. This is what James is saying. Don't trust the plans of wealth, but trust in the sovereignty of God. Did you know that America has 4% of the world's population? But the net worth of people in America, according to the World Bank, accounts for 
of the global net worth. We're only 4%. But in terms of the world's wealth, we have 31% of it. Out of the $463.6 trillion in global wealth, the United States' share is $145.8 trillion of it. A third of it. So you might be here and you're like, I'm not wealthy. I don't feel wealthy. And look, welcome to the club. But in you, by global standards, are wealthy. And at least you live in a culture of wealth. So the American church is in the crosshairs of passages like this. We do take wealth too seriously. We talk about, we take money too seriously. If you look, think about our language, how it betrays us in this way. We say time is what? Money. We spend time with those we care about. And we think of our relationships about what it costs us. And if the, the, our relationships are worth the what? The investment. We take it too seriously, but we also don't take it seriously enough. And here's some more statistics to you. Did you know that Christian philanthropy in 2022 accounted for 70% of all American philanthropy at about $300 billion? So last year, American Christians gave $300 billion to address Global poverty, the Barna Research Group found out. So one, for all of its flaws, the American church is still in value add to the world. But imagine then if we took wealth seriously enough. Did you know, according to church development, the research group, 5% of church goer, goers give their money to the church. 5%. So we gave $300 billion, and that's probably for 5% of Christians in America did that. If every health research funding found out that if every Christian tied 10%, which we talk about here, like Bible in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, 10% is the floor. It's actually, if you do up all the tithes, it's probably closer to like 20-something percent. But 10% is kind of the, the ceiling in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it becomes the floor. Like you want to be sacrificially giving, sacrificially generous. If every Christian tithed at the floor of the New Testament at 10%, faith organizations would have an extra $139 billion each year. James is saying wealth has deep meaning. How we use it determines who we believe, he says, has control over our lives. Do we have control over our lives, or does God have control over your lives? So James says, go ahead, make plans. Go ahead and do it. But don't fall under the assumption that you can control your life. God is the one who does. And so James is saying, do you trust God's plan? Do you trust his control? Do you trust his sovereignty, or do you trust your own? Proverbs 16, verse 9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Read that again. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord 
establishes his steps. Your plans, my plans, will only go as far as God has planned them to go. James says, your life is a mist. You could live 50 years. You could live 50 seconds. I hope you don't live 50 seconds because that would make Sunday, this Sunday morning service really awkward. But you could. And because God is in control over your life, we need to stop controlling our lives with the plans of our wealth. We need to put our trust in the plans of God's sovereignty by consulting him on them. So here's what James says in verse 15 through 16. He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Look, we have Christians you'll hear often say, like, the Lord willing, or if the Lord wills, or if God, you know, with God's help, as we said in the baptism vows. Right? That's, it's more than this, but it's at least that. James is asking us, do you believe your life rests on God's sovereignty? Do you believe that God establishes your steps? Do you consult God about your plans? Do you ask God, let me ask you, do you ask God how you should use your wealth? Do you ask him what your budget should be? Do you ask what vacations you should take or what car you should buy? Or where you should send your kids to school? And listen, I'm only asking you this question because I ask it myself and I think I know why I don't. I don't consult God because I know what he'll say. Perhaps you do the same. You don't consult God because you know what he'll tell you to do. Wealth is never neutral. Our sin can make us believe that the plans of wealth dictate our lives, not God. But it all could be taken away tomorrow, and then what? Like, hasn't COVID taught us anything? Your life's not guaranteed. Whether you believe the lab theory or the wet market theory, right? Like somebody somewhere in a different country could be doing things that could actually kill millions and millions of people in the world. And yet we're making retirement plans like we're going to get there without consulting God? Like hasn't taught us anything? Your job isn't guaranteed. The economy isn't guaranteed. I've started eating less eggs in the morning because the cost of eggs isn't guaranteed. Nothing about the plans of wealth are guaranteed except what God has planned in his sovereignty. Let me just ask you this. Perhaps God used COVID. Perhaps God's using inflation. Perhaps he's using a potential recession to show you how your wealth isn't guaranteed. Perhaps he's teaching us in America that wealth isn't guaranteed. Inflation, recession, cost of eggs, cost of milk, whatever it might be, is this kind of this realization, at least for me and I hope for you, that like I'm not guaranteed that like tomorrow my budget is going to be what it is. 
We know wealth isn't guaranteed. You know it deep in your gut that wealth is not guaranteed. But when we don't use our wealth the way God wants, we don't consult him on it, what we do is we cling to it more tightly. Like, you know it's not guaranteed, so what do you do? What do I do? We cling to it. We hold on to it more tightly. And then what happens? We get anxious over it, and we fear not having it, and we lose sleep over it, and our stomachs are knots because of it. Because trusting in the plans of wealth is like trusting to cross the chasm of life on a rickety rope bridge. We don't want to let go of the ropes because the bridge could snap at any moment. But it's those who've learned to trust in the sovereignty of God who walk across the chasms of life on like a state-of-the-art suspension bridge of God's plans. They walk across with confidence, without a concern in the world, because they know they can make plans, but God establishes their steps. James is saying, don't be arrogant about your plans for wealth. Don't be so arrogant that you forget who gave it to you in the first place. Don't be so arrogant that you won't consult the man or the giver in heaven who gave you the gift and can take it away whenever he wants. That's arrogance. Every time I make a budget and I don't consult God, that's arrogance. It's me saying, I know what I'm going to make this month, and I know what plans I'm going to have. Every time I put savings away and I don't consult God, it's me saying, I know what's going to happen six months from now, a year from now, three years from now. Every time I put money in retirement without consulting God, it's me arrogantly saying, I'm going to live long enough to pull money out of there. It's arrogance. So go ahead and listen to me. Plan your future. Put money away from retirement. It's a good thing. Do it. Plan for relaxation and enjoyment. Pay for vacations. Do fun things. Plan for education. Pay for tuition. Plan for your home. Pay your mortgage. But consult God first. Some of us are in financial situations and we're struggling and we're strapped. Not because we were listening to God, but because we didn't ask him. We went and said, we're going to pay for all these things, and then we'll give God whatever's left over. Maybe. It's arrogance. Your plans for you are only as good as God's plans for you. And God's plans are good. Maybe he's having you be anxious about your money, so you realize it's not guaranteed. Maybe has you worrying about retirement because he wants you to realize you're not guaranteed to get there. That his plans are only as good as his plans are for you. Jesus tells this parable in Luke chapter 12 that starts this way. And he said to them, take care on being on your guard against all covetedness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Whew. So then what he does, he tells this story. He tells a story about a rich man who made plans to store up his wealth so that he could relax years down the road and enjoy his life. And here's, what Jesus, here's how Jesus finishes off the story. 
But God said to him, fool, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The foolish thing isn't making plans. The foolish thing is making plans without God. You hear me? Make your plans. Go ahead. But don't be arrogant enough to the point where you're making them without God. So James ends this way with this one-line proverb, James 4, 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Sin isn't just the bad things we do. It's also the good things we choose not to do. Sin is active and passive. Too many of us, what we do is we fight actively, we fight against active sin, but we never take care of passive sin. James is saying if you don't consult God and his word about anything, but particularly about how you should use your wealth, when you know you should, when you heard a sermon that you should, and then you go use your wealth anyway, that's sin. So he's saying, you may not harass a homeless man, but if you ignore the nudge of the Holy Spirit to give money to him and walk past him, that's sin. Because you knew the right thing to do, and you chose not to do it. He says, you might not steal from a brother or sister in, in Christ. You might not steal their food or their coat, but like in James 2, if you see a brother or sister who's in physical need and say, I'll pray for you, be well, be warm, and don't give them food or clothing, that's sin. Because you knew the right thing to do and chose not to do it. You may not murder. You may not commit adultery. You may not steal or lie or look at inappropriate things online. But if you hear God's commands to sac be sacrificially generous, to look at wealth in light of his sovereignty, and you go another week without adjusting your budget, listen to me, that's sin sin because you heard from God's word what you're supposed to do with your wealth to do the right thing and you chose not to do it listen to me I know some of you give sacrificially I'm not talking to you if God tells you to give even more great but it's a shame it's a shame that 5% of churchgoers in America tithe it's a shame it's arrogance it's sin. See, we have a wealth problem because it's become an idol. What are idols? We talk about it all the time. Idols are good things that have become ruling things. The thing that if we lost it, life wouldn't feel like it's worth living. See, wealth is a good thing. It's a gift from God, but we make it a ruling thing. And when we do that, we fall in love with the gift over the giver and we believe we're in control and we arrogantly make plans about our wealth because we believe wealth can give us life in the only way that God can. But because your life is a mist and my life is a mist, if I, I could lose all of it in an instant, and when that happens, if I feel like life isn't worth living in that moment, that means that it's all been an idol in my life. 
And then what? Jesus says that I'm like the rich man in the parable. Or I'm like the rich young ruler. And Jesus says to people like, like us, like me, heaven, you gained the whole world, but you lost your soul. Is it really worth it? And so wealth must also be used in light of God's kingdom. So that was the, hey, if you're a Christian, that was your section. This is the non-Christian section, okay? All right, so if you're a Christian, the pressure just a little bit off now. But listen to this, James 5, 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and the corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. James doesn't mess around, does he? You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of laborers who mowed your fields. These are probably Christian laborers, right? The poor Christians are being taken advantage of. Which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you. It's kind of a reminder to, I'm just going to pick this apart a little bit, of like Exodus where God hears the cries of his people. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in, the day, in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. He's saying that the Christians aren't resisting you and you're still taking advantage of them. He's saying don't invest in earth. Invest in the kingdom. James turns to the non-Christian wealthy, and like an Old Testament prophet, he prophesies judgment on them in earshot of Christians. Because he doesn't want his Christian readers to invest in earthly things like the non-Christian wealthy are doing. He wants them to invest in the kingdom. This is God being gracious to us. So we can hear the judgment on the non-Christian wealthy and change our lives. If you knew tomorrow that Amazon stock was going to crash, would it be inf wouldn't it be foolish to invest your money in it today? It's not that God's being killjoy here. God's being gracious to you. If you're a child of God, you're a son of the Most High or a daughter of the Most High, you've been adopted by Jesus, you, through Jesus' death and his resurrection, if you've been adopted, he's being gracious to you. If you will listen, if I will listen, he's letting us know ahead of time the fate of those who invest their wealth in earthly things. He says, these people will weep and howl. Their riches will rot, their clothes will be eaten by moss, their money will corrode, and they're headed like fattened pigs straight to the slaughter of God's judgment. And God's graciously warning us, are you sure you want to invest in earthly things too? If this is going to be the result, do you want that? If you invest in earthly wealth, you get destructive consequences of earthly things. You get anxiety, fear, loss of sleep, knots in your stomach over money, weeping and howling, rotting, moths. Right? Moths will eventually like eat your clothes. As great as the clothes are now. My wife bought me this nice shirt. One day a moth's probably gonna eat this thing. I think it's nice. You might not think it's nice, but corrosion, he says. Flesh being eaten like it would be by fire. And in the end, God's judgment. 
saying this is the consequences if you invest in earthly things. He's saying, Christians, listen, listen. These are the consequences. Do you want these two? He says, but if you invest in the kingdom things, you get kingdom things in return. Like living paycheck to paycheck. Listen to this. God promises that to, in Jesus to free you from anxiety. Living, think about living paycheck to paycheck without being anxious because Jesus is your peace. Think about finding someone nicked your car. You go out in the morning and someone nicked your car on the street and didn't leave a note, but it doesn't ruin your day. Why? Because God's in control. God saw it, and that's what matters. Imagine giving sacrificially to the work of the gospel, being filled with joy as you bless others and God blesses you. We're having a kingdom legacy. Like, listen, maybe you won't retire the way you want, but when your grandkids and great-grandkids ask why you don't have a condo in Florida and your kids say it's because grandmom and grandpop thought it was more important to invest in church than to invest in earthly things, that's a legacy. Like, what kind of legacy do you want? Grandmom and grandpop have an awesome condo in Florida and drive a Volvo. Wow. What a legacy. Those things aren't bad. If you consult at God first and you're being sacrificially generous, look, I would love to have a condo in Florida one day and drive a Volvo. But I would rather my grandkids say, Grandmom and Grandpop invested in their local church and they live in our mother-in-law suite and they drive a beat-up Honda Civic. That's a legacy. My grandparents were super generous. Not, they drive a super nice Volvo. Listen, through Jesus' death and resurrection, what God is doing is he's turning the world upside down. Which is actually right side up, isn't it? Jesus is bringing the world back to Eden, the way things are supposed to be. The world Jesus is bringing us back to will feel like upside down to you because of sin. Like, wait, I'm supposed to consult God first and then do my budget? That feels upside down, but God is saying, no, that's actually right side up. This is how the world's supposed to be. And through the Holy Spirit, what happens is when we start seeing the world is being turned right side up in Jesus, that changes our view of wealth. It changes our view of our money, our possessions, and how we use our homes and our cars and what we want our legacy to be. Wealth doesn't have to be an idol for you. It doesn't have to be an idol for me because Jesus, in his death on the cross, broke the power over it for all of us who put our faith in him and in his upside-down world that's actually right-side up. We don't trust in the plans of wealth but God's sovereignty. That's how it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be that we don't invest in earthly things, but in kingdom things. And when it's supposed to be that way, those who use their wealth without consulting God and invest in earthly things are actually the ones who are doing it upside down. This is a hard and heavy passage, and it will crush you if you have an upside-down mindset. 
If you haven't adopted God's right-side-up mindset, this passage will crush you. You'll walk out of here. You'll be angry at God. You'll be angry at Evan. You'll be angry at the church. You'll ignore what God is asking you to do with your wealth. But if you have a right-side-up mindset where God is sovereign and his kingdom is where you invest, then this passage is an easy yoke to carry. That's what Jesus promises for those who follow him. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. We can't help it if God's word and James in particular talks about wealth. We can't help that. It's been done. It's out now. But we can help how we respond to it. We can go one of two ways with this passage. We can go one or two ways with what the Bible teaches on this. We can embrace it or we can resist it. And for those of us who resist it, we've fallen in love with the gift over the giver. We believe our wealth can give us life and we trust ourselves over God because we're too invested in earthly things. And that's us. We need to repent. And sometimes you'll fluctuate between embracing and resisting. But if we embrace God's wealth, consult God. Here's what I'm asking you to do. Consult God about your wealth. Please go home today and just pray over your budget. Please. I'm not, James is warning you. I'm appealing to you. I don't want anxiety and fear and the crushing weight of wealth on you. I want you to be free from that. I want you to go home and pray over your budget. Could you do that? Can we all go home and pray over our savings and checking accounts and our credit cards? Some of us have way too much credit card debt. We need to actually pray to God, God, like, please help me handle this. Help me do this. Help me deal with these school loans that I have. Maybe Papa Joe will come through and maybe he won't, but I'm not going to trust in wealth. I'm not going to trust in Papa Joe. I'm going to just trust in you, Lord. Or can we pray over our investments and our retirement? And give all those over to God and say, God, use this. Like Hannah does with her son and Samuel. God, here's my son. Take him. Here's my wealth, Lord. Use it. And resist the dangers of wealth by investing in the kingdom. The biblical principle of first fruits is a great way to resist the danger of wealth. Give sacrificially first. Pastor Kyle mentioned it during the offering. Hey, set up automatic giving, and it's gone. Look, it's, it's hard because like, I make something on a paycheck, and then I notice in my bank account there's less than what it says on my paycheck. But it's gone. It's the first fruits. Here, God, take it first, and I'll figure out what to do with the rest. And I'll consult you on it, Lord. And I'll pay for everything else second. Start giving sacrificially today. Look, I, I know it's tax return season. It's always my, I always love it, tax return. It's my money to begin with. I got it. But really, it's God's money to begin with. It's not the government. It's not mine. It's God's. Use that for the kingdom. Ask God, hey, God, I got my tax return. What should I do with this? And he might say, invest in your retirement. He might say, hey, you know that condo in Florida? Go for it. Or he might say, hey, be generous with it. Use your wealth to bless others. 
Some of us do need to sell our possessions and give our money away, like Jesus tells the rich young ruler. We have too many things. Some of us need to just use our great homes that we've been given by God. Just open those homes up to others. Some of us have nice clothes or clothes we don't wear that are still in good condition, but we just need to give those away. Instead of holding them for the time, we're definitely going to wear it when we lose those 20 pounds. I've been there. I'm there right now. Just decide I'm just going to buy bigger clothes. That's all I'm going to do. Some bigger shirts. Thank you, Amanda. Or some of us just need to use the wealth of knowledge that we have or like the wealth of the money that we have to just make a meal for someone. Maybe a neighbor or somebody in your home meeting who had a baby or had surgery, right? This is just ways of using our wealth and saying, God, what should I do with it? What should I do with my wealth, God? And God, I'm going to invest not in earthly things. I'm going to invest in kingdom things. Look, this passage is challenging. It's heavy if we have an upside-down mindset. If we're living in a sinful mindset, this is hard. But if we're living in the kingdom mindset, we're living in Jesus' mindset, where it's right side up again, it's the mindset of Eden and of new creation, this won't be so heavy on us. But it's challenging. But let's use our wealth in a way that reflects God's sovereignty, that we trust his sovereignty, and let's use it in a way where we're investing in his kingdom and not just earthly things. Let's pray.